please rise for the reading of God's word. Today's reading comes from Acts, 13th chapter. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue the gr in grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we make our way through the book of Acts, we're asking, what does it mean to be the faithful people of God on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus? And what we see today is to be the faithful people of God is to live in the sweet grace of God's forgiveness. And that might sound simple, it might sound easy, but I assure you it's not an easy place to stay. It's not an easy place in which to live. So we see chapter 13 of Acts open. We see Acts and Barnabas and John Mark on the move again, right, engaging their first missionary journey. John Mark is going to separate at this point. That will become a point of contention later on in the book of Acts, why 
John Mark has parted from Paul and Barnabas. But for now, Paul and Barnabas move on to Antioch and Pisidia. That's a little bit confusing because if you're tracking with the book of Acts, they've just left the town of Antioch. Well, they're two different Antiochs. This is often referred to as Pisidian Antioch. As they come to the city, as is Paul's custom, he goes to the synagogue first. And there he's invited to preach. And Paul, traveling throughout various towns, having the credentials he does, having graduated from the school of Gamaliel, it wouldn't be unusual at all for him to be invited to preach as a guest preacher, so to speak, in the midst of the synagogue. And what Paul does is he begins to start with a brief history of Israel. Now, you probably noted in the reading this morning that we're skipping over a portion of Paul's sermon. That's really for two reasons. Number one, the sermons and acts are highly repetitive. Almost every serving gives a brief account of the history of Israel. And secondly, it's really just a lead-in for Paul to get to the meat of what he wants to say, which is the significance, the uniqueness of the person of Jesus and what he's accomplished. And so uh, verses 17 through 35, a bit of that background, and Paul begins to get really underway in verse 36, where he begins to pose the question to them, or raise the question, what is unique about Jesus? And he does this by playing off of King David, perhaps the most significant person in the history of Israel. And Paul says, you know, David and Jesus are different because David died and went into the grave and he's there rotten. Jesus died and went into the grave and he's no longer in the grave. He's been resurrected. And this makes him substantially different and it makes what God is accomplishing in the person and work of Jesus, substantially different. And he begins to summarize in a very profound statement what this difference is, what this newness is that God is undertaking. And we find that summary in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is a remarkably important statement. Paul is making two claims. Number one, that uh, you, as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. This is number one. Number two, there's something about that forgiveness of sins that frees you in a way that the law of Moses could never free you. Two statements, that you have forgiveness of sins, and that you have been freed in a way that the law of Moses failed to free you. Now, if we take just the first statement that, you are, um, that in Jesus there is forgiveness of sins, that presupposes two notions. Number one, that you have sin. And number two, that in some capacity you can't do enough about that sin because you require forgiveness. Those two presuppositions, those two notions to to saying that the forgiveness of sins is important in Jesus have to be present. If we negotiate either one, we really start to undermine the gospel. These are the very foundation stones of why the news of Jesus is good, why it's good news. And so what does it mean to understand that we have sin and that we need forgiveness? Much of American Christianity has forgotten or abandoned these two very basic principles of the Christian faith. So first, that we have sin. Well, it's very, it's almost unpopular, it's almost scandalous today to assert that a human being from birth is bad, that they have a predisposition to evil, 
that they are not born good or neutral. And this flies in the face of the Enlightenment. It was during the Enlightenment that the West moved toward a place that's saying all human beings are born as blank slates. And if you're born into a bad circumstance, you're probably going to be shaped by that bad circumstance and come out evil. If you're born to good circumstance, you're going to become, come out being better or good. But you're not born that way. You're born as a blank slate and you're shaped by your environment or your circumstance. And this has become very much a narrative for our day. But it's not the biblical narrative. Many of you will recognize Paul's very famous words in Romans 3. For we have already charged that all, meaning all humanity, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul doesn't think we're good. In fact, he asserts that we, in and of ourselves, it's the very baseline of humanity to rebel and run in the opposite direction of God. Now, that's funny because I hear people using the word good all the time. In fact, I catch myself. Right? We, we apply the adjective good to all sorts of things. Well, he's a good boy. Or she's really good at math. Or he's good on the baseball field. We use this in many different ways, and perhaps it causes some confusion for us because Paul seems to be quite clear that you are not good. In fact, even when some of the religious leaders uh, inquire or pushing Jesus on an issue, um, they call him good teacher. And Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This notion of good that we would apply in any number of directions Biblically, it's something that we are uh, deprived of. And so, if we, don't, we aren't good, and if we're bound up in a notion of rebellion, right, if good in a biblical sense we would define as being caught up in embodying the character of God, reflecting His glory, seeking His good, and as a result, our good. That's what true goodness is. And so, if we are failing at that, or we are limited in that, we would say that we have a tendency to move in the other direction, which we might summarize by either saying we love a good thing too much or we love a bad thing. Moving in these directions, we move away from God. Do you love a good thing too much? Right? Have you ever found yourself in a place thinking, oh, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I want to sponsor a pastor of the deep force or a child? I want to say, but you know, I'm, I need to get this Amazon order done first. Is your Amazon order evil? No, probably not. But if you love that and are more committed to that and it trumps greater goods to which you might invest yourself, then are you loving a good thing too much? Well, yes. Or do you love a bad thing? Do you find yourself regularly in a place of loneliness or depression or hardship or frustration or feeling out of control and you turn to something that you know isn't good for you? But you find solace there. You find comfort there. And in that, do you turn to a bad thing? Well, yes, you do. And in either of these movements, in either of these decisions, we recognize that uh, we are not good in a biblical sense of goodness. This is the first notion that Paul is assuming. That you understand that you have sin. That you are not good in and of yourself, uh, in and of your heart. And you would preserve Always to glorify yourself 
And any time that I tend to forget this or find myself thinking, I'm really not that bad, one of the tricks I like to do is just to pause and to reflect upon where my mind has wandered over the course of the last few hours of the last week. And you know where my mind always wanders? It always wanders to some narrative where I'm the most important or I'm the most significant or I do something amazing. Constantly, I am at the center of my own narrative. And even in that, right? Christ has to be at the center of the narrative, which is what Paul is articulating. And to the degree that I would prefer to see myself on center stage rather than Christ, it's the same degree that evil, that a lack of goodness in a biblical sense is revealed to me and to my heart. And so this raises the second part of Paul's notion, which is that we need forgiveness. Right? Not only that we have sin, but we can't handle that sin in and of ourselves. So we need God to do something on our behalf. But forgiveness is a remarkable thing, is it not? Even on a human level, when someone says, I'm going to sacrifice what I perceive to be my rights toward justice or my rights to hold you to account, and I no longer hold this against you, I release you from any consequences of your ill actions, that's a profound gift on a human level let alone on a cosmic level, when God, who is perfect and holy, would say the same thing to us in Christ Jesus. It's a hard place uh, to live. And I don't think, even as we begin to reflect on forgiveness, right, the, the more we realize our sin, the more we realize our desperate need for forgiveness. And forgiveness is uncomfortable because when we really dwell upon forgiveness, we realize that it feels like we, it puts us in a place of debt. Right? Can you imagine, you can easily understand this, if you just thought someone, um, someone risked their life to save your child. You Suddenly you, you feel yourself remarkably in, in their debt. Well, if God sacrifices his son to rescue you and your family, right, there's a sense of, oh, I owe him everything. Well, I don't like to be owing anyone any, anything, let alone everything. And so we, we try to negotiate the notion of our sin to excuse us from this kind of holistic, all-encompassing notion of forgiveness that, that feels threatening to us. You kind of get the notion, if, if you were to imagine me thinking about um, acquiring an, a new pen, right? If you know me, you know I, I like pens, I like to write longhand, and I like fountain pens. And fountain pens aren't cheap, and so I... Uh, Sometimes I look at these pens and I think, oh, I really need this pen. I think, no, that, I don't need another pen. I've got lot, I have lots of pens. I don't need another pen. So I go back and forth, but I keep looking at the website and I think, oh, this pen looks important. I think I'm going to be able to accomplish things I haven't been able to accomplish with that pen, right? And so we begin to say, and so let's even make it a little bit more complex or a little bit more serious. Let's say I was going to, I really wanted to give... Um, you know, $200 to uh, the India team this summer, but now this pen's $100. Well, I'll, I'm going to get the pen, and I'm still going to give $100 to the India team. So now I've, I've decided what I'm going to commit to for myself. That's influenced now what I'm committing to, to the kingdom of God. And so I start, I feel a little, maybe a little guilt, maybe a little shame, but I start to say, well, yeah, really, you know, I think new sermons are going to reach new heights with this pen. Now I might think, don't I deserve this pen? There aren't, uh, you know, I don't, there aren't necessarily a lot of perks. I don't get airline miles being a pastor. And why, you know, a new pen, that's not that big a deal. And then if you, if you go down far enough this road, what's really fascinating about the human heart is you start to philosophize, 
right? If you ever thought you weren't a philosopher, oh, you, you are such a philosopher. You start to say things like, um, or I would say uh, in, this, in the case of this illustration, well, um, would I really say that no one can ever engage in an indulgence? Right, that's a philosophical question. Can you ever enjoy an indulgence? Or is that always selfish and greedy? And I say, well, I don't know anyone who would say you can never engage in an indulgence. So why can't I say that this is an okay indulgence? Or how do you draw that line philosophically to decide upon an okay indulgence and an unacceptable indulgence? So that line's really hard to draw. That will take a lot of time and energy. I'll work on that. But in the meantime, I'll work on it with my new pen. And you see how this works? How we labor right, in ways to, uh, to engage various things. But I also recognize at a deep level that there is, there's guilt and shame. Guilt is the notion that I, uh, I've done something wrong. Shame is the, some, is, the, is the notion that I am wrong. And in making this decision, right, I have guilt that I've made the wrong decision, but that wrong decision must be born out of a real evil in my heart. I am wrong. And both of those things, in some degrees, are true, right? Guilt and shame aren't all bad. They're good indicators, but they're crushing if we try to, uh, to navigate our own life under the guilt and shame that comes with sin, right? Before I believe in forgiveness, then I believe that God will only love me for some external standard of goodness. And if I recognize I'm not living up to that external standard of goodness, then I don't really believe that God can love me. And that puts me in a very desperate place. But if I believe in God's forgiveness, then I believe that God loves me and accepts me despite my sin. And so no longer am I alienated in that way, but instead enjoy his compassion. Now, Paul is going to say that this comes in a new way. This is somehow unveiled in a new capacity in the cross of Jesus. And so how does this work? In, in verse 39, Paul writes, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Well, what freedom comes through the cross that did not come through the law of Moses? What is the difference that Paul is trying to highlight? Well, the law of Moses is just shorthand in this sense for the sacrificial system. That in the Old Testament, if you had sin, what did you do about your sin? Well, you got the appropriate animal and you went to the temple and you made a sacrifice and the blood of that animal atoned for your sin. All well and good, except there are two big problems to the law. The author of Hebrews points out one of them. He says, you have to do this over and over and over and over and over again. It's a constant maintenance in which you must take stock all the time of every sin of which you engaged and then engage the appropriate sacrifice that you might have the appropriate atonement and be brought back into relationship with God. And the author of Hebrews recognizes that's exhausting and it doesn't have any permanent effect. It doesn't actually render a change in the cosmic condition between God's people and God himself. The other problem is that the law never provided for gross sin, right? So you're fine as long as your sin stays on a, a kind of a respectable level. But if you start graduating toward bigger sin, if you start engaging in um, adultery or uh, dabble in sorcery, things of this nature, you're either going to be kicked out of Israel, exiled, or you're going to be put to death, right? There's no sacrifice that correlates to big or gross sin, and so for those two ways, it, it fails. But when we come to the cross of Jesus, we see that there is one sacrifice made for all that is final. There's no sacrifice that needs to be added to the sacrifice of Jesus. And there is no sin bigger than the blood of Christ. 
Right? There's no sin that can't be atoned for, no matter how gross or substantial it is, because Jesus' sacrifice is bigger. And this is what Paul means when he says you can actually be freed from what you could not be freed under the law of Moses, which is funny because this is a freedom with which I think we profoundly struggle. There's a part of us that would prefer to live under law. We feel like we're on more, more understandable terms, that we don't have the same debt, and we believe, I think, at the end of the day, that we're much better than we actually are. And so we're going to receive some blessing from God. Freedom is a funny notion, and it's a funny notion culturally for us. I've been listening to a podcast, which I found pretty fun. It's, it's called How I Built This. And it's just interviews with kind of famous entrepreneurs who have built substantial businesses or corporations, typically very famous people, very large enterprises that are, are built in kind of a way, often their hard work and creativity and vision or giftedness. And this past week or so, they were interviewing Ron Scheich, and uh, he's the mind who, uh, growing up in poverty, he didn't have two nickels, essentially, to, to rub together. He asked his dad for an, his inheritance, kind of like the prodigal, but in a respectable way. He said, I want to go try to make it. And he opened up a cookie store in uh, Boston. He also noticed that there, was a, uh, a, there were three stores that were kind of a bread company, and he, he kind of had a vision for where they could go. And so he leveraged himself and bought those and created Au Bon Pain. And when he got tired of that, he started looking for a new opportunity, stumbled upon the St. Louis Bread Company, and turned that into Panera Bread. And so he, that, the company's valued now something like $500 million, something obscene. And they were interviewing him, and he's, he's a high-strung guy. He's always thinking about what to do next. I don't think he sleeps. You know the kind of the impression you get as you're listening to him being interviewed. And the interviewer finally says, you know, you didn't grow up with money, and you don't, you don't seem to take a lot of leisure time, right? Do you enjoy this massive fortune that you've come into? And he, he hemmed and hawed a little bit, but eventually he said, well, well, yeah, of course, money is freedom. And I thought, money is freedom. Man, I think we believe that. And it is freedom in a way. It's freedom if we define freedom in the sense, well, I'll have less stress, uh, I can have more opportunities and more choices. Um, I can take care of things in a more easy fashion. It's that kind of freedom. But is it a biblical kind of freedom? Is it a freedom where money will do anything about sin and guilt and shame and death? No, it won't, it won't do anything. No matter how much money you have, it won't actually grant you the freedom, the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about, which is to live in relationship with God out of being loved rather than out of a, uh, a situation of performance. Right? That's the difference between living in the law of Moses, in which I have to perform, uh, I have to be obedient to be blessed, and where I fail to be obedient, I have to offer sacrifice to be atoned for. On this side of the cross, it's, an, uh, it's a relationship of grace in which God knows exactly what's going on in my heart and what I'm doing. And even before all of that, he laid down his life so that I could be redeemed. And now I'm invited to live out of love for him. And that's really, when you start to think about it, it's an entirely different way to live. 
One quick example that gets at a little bit of it is the notion that um, when I was in seminary, I took one class. There was only one class in my entire years at seminary that I took not for a grade. They didn't give a grade. It was a pass-fill course. And uh, so you thought, well, I could, do a, I could do 75 points worth of work, or I could do 100 points worth of work, and I get a pass either way. So you might think, well, I'm going to do the least amount of work in this class. I spent more time on that class than any two or three other classes combined in seminary. Why? Because they said, you get to do whatever you want to do. And I said, oh, well, I really love this subject material. Cut me loose, and I will pour myself into it. Rather than doing what you tell me to do and giving me a measurement based on my performance on, on all this. And the difference was I, was I was unbridled in my passion in that course. Right? I could simply pursue it out of love. And everything else, I was pursuing it out of a system of law where I would receive blessing for obedience and curses, right? <laughs> Failing grades for disobedience. Right? And that made, makes a substantial difference in terms of how you pursue something and how you invest in something. And I invested in that wholly right? because I could... I could simply pursue it out of love and not in any kind of economy. And when we pursue God in his kingdom out of love and not out of some kind of economy, well then, as we'll see, there's really, uh, there's profound joy. Our temptation is always to go back to that law of Moses. To live in a place where we might receive a blessing for obedience and a cursing for disobedience. There was a, uh, a story in the news just last week in which a couple found a, um, they kind of, well, they found treasure in their backyard, essentially. It's on Staten Island. They had lived in this house. There was a metal box partially submerged in their yard, and they thought it was some kind of electrical juncture. And they simply had ignored it for a number of years, but finally decided to do some landscaping and dug up this electrical juncture, which happened to be a safe that was uh, submerged in their yard. And they got the safe open, and inside they found uh, wads of hundreds wrapped in plastic bags and a lot of jewelry that appeared to be very real. And, and long story short, the, the contents of the safe were worth about $55,000. So they thought, well, this is quite a fine. The catch was that there was a note in the safe with an address on it. And the address was a neighbor down the street. And so they walked down, and they said, hey, uh, did you lose anything? <laughs> you kind of just wonder how this conversation went. It doesn't say so in the article, but they said, um, were, I think essentially they said, were you, were you ever robbed? And, and the woman who lived there teared up, and she said, yeah, in 2011, we, we were robbed, and we lost uh, the contents of the safe, which she detailed for them. And they said, well, uh, we found her safe. It was in our backyard. And she, she started weeping. She was overjoyed. And, but the, the journalist went to the question that people were asking was, why did you say anything? Right? Which is interesting that we even want to know the answer to that question because everyone's thinking, you could have just kept it. It's like cash. Right? You could have sold the jewelry off quietly over time in various boroughs of New York City. Why did you go? It was $55,000. It had been done. And uh, the person who owned the home said, well, you know, Good karma, bad karma. So, pretty interesting response. What he's saying is, uh, ultimately, I believe that I'm going to receive some comic blessing as a result of doing the right thing, 
And I'm afraid that if I didn't return it, I would have received some cosmic cursing for having kept the safe, bad karma, good karma, which is nothing but a secularized version of the Mosaic Law. And yet that's how we're always tempted to live because we want to be blessed for the good that we do and we want to avoid, right? And we think we have in our power to avoid the badness for which we might be cursed. And we like to keep God in that economic relationship because it seems simpler to manage. And yet there's no life there, right? Because what you're essentially deciding to do is to live a life that is pretend, If you start to say to yourself that I can be good enough, that I will receive God's blessing and I would rather relate to him in this way and I don't really need his forgiveness, you're like a 400-pound couch potato thinking that you can participate in the Olympics. Right? That's the reality. You are so far from being holy and good in the sense that the Bible describes it in a way that truly would be honoring to God and good for humanity. And I think most of you know this. Most of you know the degree to which you think about yourself, the degree to which you favor yourself and your family and your story over all others, and the small amount of time you truly devote to thinking about Jesus and investing in the extension of his kingdom. And so the only remedy to that is to, is to admit it. That sounds kind of funny. Uh, but the first step, right, is admitting the problem and then throwing yourself on the forgiveness of God in which you realize he knows all of this and loves you desperately to the point of coming and dying so that you might be redeemed. And yes, there's part of that you say, well, now I owe God everything. But yes, that's the best place to find yourself. There's no safer or more whole or more human place than you could be than to recognize my life will take the best track possible if I understand that everything I possess and everything that I am will be used the wisest and to the best possible ends if it is all invested in the kingdom of God. And that's what you see play out in this story, right? What happens to the Jews who reject God's revelation and don't want to hear Paul? They become jealous. All of a sudden, Paul's got bigger crowds than we do. They revile him. They complain about him. They go to the high-powered people of the city and rally them to kick Paul and Barnabas out of the city, which results both in the fulfillment and in the actual reality and history of their judgment as Paul and Barnabas wipe uh, or shake the dust off their sandals as they exit the city. But what happens to the disciples who have actually surrendered themselves to the forgiveness of God? You know, from one perspective, from an earthly perspective, it looks like Paul and Barnabas lose, does it not? They're kicked out of the city. The Jews reclaim the synagogue. You might think, well, what's God doing here? But do you notice verse 51, the last verse, or verse 52, the last verse of our passage? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How in the world could they be filled with joy, having apparently lost the day? Well, the disciples know that they're loved by God, and that love is grounded in the cross, not grounded right, in their economic relationship with God. And so they don't have to look at things and say, oh, we must be cursed here because things aren't going in the way that we would expect blessing to go. They can say our, God's love for us is grounded in the cross. And so whether we take the synagogue and convert the town or whether God has us kicked out and moved to the next town, we're still filled with joy in the Holy Spirit because there is nothing that could be added to the love of God 
and to his expression and willingness to forgive us than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning and thank you for your great and abundant grace. We confess to you today that we are not good. There is no goodness in us apart from that which you would bring into our lives as we are unified to Christ and indwelt with your spirit. And so would you help us to humble ourselves and to know the joy of throwing ourselves on your forgiveness, not to try to think of, well, how good have I been that I might be blessed or what disobedience do I need to atone for in my own accord, but instead to truly say, no, I am without hope apart from your mercy. And so let your mercy wash down. Let us be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Let us be filled with your spirit. And let us be subject to your will. We pray that you would give us boldness in our faith. And that you would nourish us at the table toward the sun this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Those who are helping to serve the